Hi there, and welcome to the podcast, Life as a, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. The way in which we as humans record our experience is clearly varied. Documenting the world and our interpretations of it including the spaces that we as living beings occupy, is to some considered to be an art form unto itself. It is this mixing of art and life which is able to give rise to sometimes deeply profound feelings that define the human experience. Sadly, at times, it is the worst of what humans are connected with which can evoke the most powerful forms of expression and emotional output. Think war, destruction, greed, or suffering. Despite being incredibly difficult emotions to empathetically cover and study, the work done by those who focus on it is no less important. It is often visual exposure to atrocities or tragedy, which leads to the acknowledgement of the worst of what we as humans are capable of. And yet somehow, all of that can lead to seeds of positive change being planted and springs of hope being discovered. On today's show, I have a guest who has found ways to serve humanity. He does so by way of lending his photojournalistic skills to many causes and documenting what he sees through his lens. Regis Defreno takes photographs and writes. He records lives as a documentary photographer. In his own words, his duty is a matter of making pictures with a sense of belonging, ethnographic intelligence, and empathy. Some people call it humanism, he just calls it presence. Regis is an award-winning photographer. His works have been widely exhibited around the world in various exhibitions, including Mall Gallery in London, European Parliament, National Institute of Art History in Paris, École de Louvre, Cultural Center of the Embassy of Japan, and many others. Furthermore, world governments often call upon Regis to draw attention to issues deemed worthy and in need of dialogue. Not to be left out, major news publications, including the New York Times, also feature his work by way of his partnered activities with globally renowned NGOs such as the United Nations, Save the Children, the Red Cross, Athena, and several others. His work, specifically for NGOs, has been centered on documenting operations relating to gender-based violence, asylum seekers, disaster recovery programs, PTSD, rights advocacy, religious discrimination, women empowerment, war experiences, environmental sustainability, and child protection, amongst many others. As the NGOs do their work, Regis reports it with relevant focused and strong narratives producing photographs and text. To add, he has recently become a Sony ambassador for Europe, which allows him to not only share his work and experiences, but also spread awareness of the many pressing issues he covers. This in turn undoubtedly serves a purpose of inspiring others towards contemplating what they too can do to help those most vulnerable. With all that said, Regis, it's a true honor to have you on the program. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's an honor for me to be your guest. I'm very happy to share with you and to talk with you. Yeah, I'm really excited to, to speak about all of these things. I mean, your background speaks for itself as I just read those things off. And uh, I think it's going to be a really interesting talk today. So yeah, without further ado, why don't we just jump right into it? I do have the first segment lined up here, and it's something called Coloring Wikipedia. And the premise of this segment is basically I read off a definition of the guest profession as defined by Wikipedia. And I like to do it for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, it brings everybody up to speed. And then also, two, it offers a nice jumping off point for us to explore the profession. Sometimes there's aspects that are underrepresented or just flat out ignored. And uh, yeah, hearing the guest take on it all, I think, uh, gets things started in a nice way. So... I have you down here, of course, for documentary photography, and just let me read that off, and then I'll ask you a few questions. Sound good? Let's go. All right. Documentary photography. Documentary photography usually refers to a popular form of photography, 
used to chronicle events or environments both significant and relevant to history and historical events, as well as everyday life. It is typically undertaken as professional photojournalism or real life reportage, but it may also be an amateur, artistic, or academic pursuit. All right, there it is. So within the context of what you have done, what you currently do, you know, what would you say to that definition? It's quite a good one. It's, it's a nice introduction. The fact that they emphasize on this historical aspect and the meaning, the significance of these moments that we try to record, I think is a good first step. I would like to add, uh, maybe I should write myself some add-ons to this Wikipedia article. Yeah. There's also in, in documentary photography, to my understanding, there's also these aspects of documents. And I mean by this, that we produce documents in the forms of pictures. I'm going to give you one example. There has been recently in Europe, the resignment of one of the director of Frontex. Frontex is the uh, European institution managing the borders for the EU. And um, these uh, people were saying there is no pushback. We don't do any pushbacks for asylum seekers in Bosnia, in uh, many other places where I've been. And when you produce a picture showing that someone went through a violent pushback, it's a document. Mm -hmm. A document that the NGOs, uh, that many human rights watch associations can use and can show. It's like a proof. It's not, of course, a trial. I'm not a lawyer. We're not talking about the same yeah. kind of proof. But it's, it's, a, it's a very important, I think, point to emphasize also when you say documentary photography, it's not only documenting, mm. it's also to my understanding and, and because that's the way I work also, it's producing documents that will have a symbolic, historical, uh, legal, sometimes social advocating value. I think that would be my personal touch on this uh, Wikipedia uh, definition. Yeah, no, I think that would definitely be a layer that is most certainly required, needed. I mean, that's, that, that is completely missing from this definition, but the way you just explain it is something that absolutely should be within there, I would say. I mean, that's something that, you know, for somebody like myself, a layman who, you know, doesn't know a lot about what somebody like yourself does aside from surface level sort of analysis, that is a major part of what you're doing, again, for all these organizations that you work with. I mean, it is, it is. And, and for them, uh, sometimes it's, it's, uh, it's so relevant, you know, in, in the way they try to advocate. If we go back again to, um, it's because I've been working on this for the last two years in the Balkans, mm. and also in Thessaloniki area. Yeah. Most of the pictures that I did uh, have been used, I mean, in a, in a very direct way. Uh, also, when I was in, in Iraq, I've been documenting IDP, so internally displaced people. Mm -hmm. One of the major camp, it's uh, near Erbil. In, we are in Iraqi Kurdistan. And um, at some point, the, the German cooperation was wondering, should we still fund the camp? Or what should we do? Is it really needed? And when they saw my pictures that I did in the camps, when you see the situation, when you see the lack of, of um, you know, true shelter, there's no water, there's no electricity, there's even snakes, you know, running in the camps where you have children. Uh, you see the conditions where they're living, you see the conditions of the school where they're supposed to go, but instead of the school, you have tents inside with more families. So when, when they see these documents, once again, they, it, I mean, a picture as, as this, this strength that it, it's all, almost, I mean, I'm very cautious and, and very careful about what I'm going to say, but it, it, it looks like a fact. Mm -hmm. I think the way I say it is very important. It looks like, of course, we all know that we can, we can fake facts. Uh, it's very easy to make a picture to show the opposite. Very easy. Yeah. I can show someone who's, who's um, in a nice place uh, with a ventilator, some, uh, iced coffee and say, well, I mean, the situation in the camps is fine. It, yeah. It's good. Yeah. But the truth is that when you look in general at these camps, when the time when I, uh, when I was there, uh, the situation was, was not good. 
And so all these pictures became documents that had a direct impact for the beneficiaries of the German cooperation and other UN-related and, and associations. Yeah, I really like that distinction between almost this idea of an image or a picture and a document. Uh, I think that that really um, clarifies a lot. And I think it really adds, as I said, I use that word again, like a different layer to all of this. It brings a deeper level of understanding for what you do and what you just explained. Yeah, that's really fascinating. The fact that I am so focused on, on this document aspect comes also from my past. So before being or working, for me, it's, it's a lifestyle. So it's more than just working. But before that, I was an academic. So I studied history. I have a master in history. I have a master in philosophy. Okay. And I did a PhD research also and, and many other academic stuff. But what I wanted to say is that when you, when you have a master in history, you clearly understand that, that images were documents. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, until very recently, uh, everywhere on this planet, the, the writing was not so widespread. So most of the time, images were the only documents available. Yeah. And they were the most popular documents. When you think about Middle Ages, all these images that you have everywhere were not images. It was not illustration. It was pure, clear, and sometimes legal, sometimes spiritual teaching about, you know, the Bibles and, and the life of Jesus and, and all these Christians, you know, religion were, were being taught through images. They were not taught through reading. I mean, nobody could read at that time. So. Right, of course, yeah. Mm. I think that that's why I'm so maybe sensitive or responsive to this definition which I give, of course, myself about mm. this aspect. And I think it's why NGOs are, are so interested in my work is that I'm, I'm, I'm not really, I'm not working for me for becoming famous as a photojournalist. I'm, I'm, I'm right. clearly, I clearly choose to work for them and to support their work with mine, mm -hmm. which is, I think, the best way to say it shortly. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, the type of work that you're doing sort of almost demands that. I mean, if you're going to be doing it the right way, I would assume. And uh, it's you've mentioned this already, and this is something we're going to get into later on. But that line between you know the work and just normal life and living is is quite blurred, I would assume. And uh, yeah, and like I said, in order to to do your work at such a high level it demands that in a sense, the, the, the feelings of empathy and empathizing with the people around you and then also respecting them in that situation or the environment that you're within to be taking it all in. Yeah, it's uh, hmm. at a loss for words really in terms of trying to, to describe that. But I think it is the reason being is it is so deep and it is so you know, complicated at times, I suppose. But in terms of, uh, you'd mentioned this as well, this lifestyle point, and being away at times on some of these assignments, how long would you typically be away for? I mean, I'm sure it varies project to project, but, you know, is it like one month to three months, six months? And what would that be like? Yeah, I, I can give you a precise answer on this one. Uh, usually I try to work on shift of two weeks. Okay. Two weeks is my general length of an assignment. Okay. Uh, why? Because basically two weeks gives you enough time to get to know the people mm -hmm. enough time so the people get to know you and they get to accept you because in i mean most of the times we meet the beneficiaries of the ngo's operation in probably the worst time of their life if we're talking about iraq i met the yazidi people went to genocide i went i met idp people um, i met people who had been bombed in the Balkans, I met many people from Kobane, by example, in, in, in the north of Syria, which had been bombed. So two weeks is the minimum, I would say. And generally, I try to extend of one week, if possible. I see. Uh, because it gives me, I think, the, the main material or materials for me would be the light, for sure. I'm a mm -hmm. photographer. And the second one would be time. Because you, you need time, the way that you you say that I try to go deep and to be deep in my work or in my lifestyle. Mm -hmm. 
if you don't have time, you cannot really connect with the people because it takes time to know someone. I mean, right, right, trust. If you think about about our lives. Uh, it, it 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 takes a life to know your partner, by example. Yeah, it takes a life to understand who your children are, or it takes a lifetime to understand who your best friend is. Mm-hmm. So imagine me. I'm just flying to one place. I'm staying there two weeks, and I'm supposed to really understand and translate yeah life the conditions so in, in order not to be uh, pretentious you have to really give yourself a minimum of presence as you said in the introduction yeah where people start to understand why you are there how you are going to photograph them mm-hmm. because it's not easy to be photographed in these situations and also what uh, will be the use of your pictures who is going to see them and who is going to use them because in a way you use people whatever you say about it photographing someone in such con- i mean situations is, is you use the people what, what i mean there's no other words to say it uh, even yeah. the ngos understand that they use the situation of the beneficiaries at some point right i mean of course it's for them of course we drive all what we do towards them, still we use them. So you have to be very conscious about that aspect. And and they need to understand too, I suppose, and be okay with that ultimately. Like you said, I mean, it's probably one of the most vulnerable points in their lives. You know, oftentimes when you're called in, it's going to be a moment like that for them. And yeah, the, the swirling of emotion and, and feeling. And for you, you know, just trying to, to understand the context fully, you know, obviously it's one thing to, to read about it before, going into that region or that zone, whatever these people are facing, but to see it and to, to take it all in for yourself so you can kind of make sense of it would require a certain amount of time. And uh, yeah, I think that adds clarity and, and, and on a deeper level of understanding for why you would yeah, need but that, that amount of time. I think this, this, this deeper level of understanding comes also from my academic past. Yeah. Um, I think... In a way, the years that I spent at university, the years that I spent reading crazy lot of books, writing articles, writing my own research, I think you, it, it, it's a slow process. It's like learning to play an instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, not, you're not going to play a cello in two months. It's going to take five, six years to start to be playing something. Right. I think it's the same. You know, you, you, I had the privilege. I think it's a real privilege to study at university and then to go on the other side and teach myself and, and keep on researching. And when you have this background, you understand that things are very complex. It's never mm-hmm. easy. Yeah. Um, by example, that wars always have two sides. Yeah. That soldiers are soldiers. They, they do what they are being ordered to do. And sometimes they don't do the right things. That, that people are people and then humans are sometimes you know the most wonderful amazing creatures on this planet and the next day they can be the most horrible creatures <laughs> especially to each other yeah. so i think all, all these kinds of, of process of let's let's call it intellectual process gives me maybe sometimes shortcuts uh, you spoke about um, i mean you were quoting myself on my website yeah I spoke about ethnographic intelligence. And it's because I have this background, because I, I, I've been studying many different countries, I, I, I can be faster on some issues. Right. Especially right. With, when you talk about gender issues, I, I, can, I can be more efficient because I can connect uh, intellectually also, you know, to some aspect of, of, of cultures that I more or less know intellectually. Yeah. It's oh, really interesting, the marrying together of these two different, you know, your academic background, but then also the, the photojournalism as well. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. And this might be a nice point to segue into a new segment, which is actually a Q&A discovery where we can just continue this back and forth. And to this point, you've mentioned a few times over your academic background and how that's lent itself to what you do now. In terms of the photography and that side of it, how did that take shape? you know, over the years, was it something like in your youth that sort of developed and then just that passion was there and you just decided to take it further? But I'd love to know a little bit more about that. It's, it's a very interesting question. It's a cliche, but the truth is that my, my mother used um, to run a art gallery. 
And so she was hosting uh, painters from all over Europe. We had, we had painters from, from Spain, from Portugal, from Germany, from England, from France, uh, many different places. Mm. So I've been raised, I guess, with all these paintings. I wanted to myself to be a painter. I mean, I was really into drawing. I, I'm not very good, unfortunately. I turned to photography when I was 12 years old. Mm. My grandfather, so the, the father of my mother, was running the art gallery. Um, he was an engineer, a bioengineer. And one of his work when he was very young was to take photographs of the land. You know, after, after it rained and you have some warmth, you can take uh, from a plane. So he was flying and he was taking from the plane. And I remember from very young seeing these pictures from above. And I was really fascinated about photography, you know, this, this kind of tool that can show things that, that are, cannot be seen by you and me. So only the fact that you make a long pose and that you expose in a special way the films. So I was connected. And when I was 12 years old, he offered me my first camera. I guess that from there, the, the story started. But I was, uh, I, was I, think, I, I think, honestly, I was a bad photographer. I, I, don't, I don't consider myself as a good photographer. I think that there are much, much better technicians than me. Mm. who do really splendid pictures. Me, I'm more interested about these kinds of raw pictures of things happening or unfolding in front of my eyes. Of course, I try to, to form, to give a form, to give a shape, to give a structure. But I'm, I'm not really that kind of photographer. So that, that's really my story with photography. It's connected to my, my mother, I would say, these painting and painters. And to my grandfather, because he kind of pushed me in the back and said, hey, that's a camera. Take yeah. pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny how those things start. And I suppose the influence that you'd have, I mean, the art side, the gallery, you know, looking at things in different, from different perspectives, but then also sort of deeply thinking about them as you're sort of visually taking it all in. I don't know, I could be reaching here, but I mean, that could be one of the, the connections possibly to, to what you've done in terms of marrying together this the skills of photography but then also this notion of documenting as well and creating and eliciting emotion from your work i don't know again that could be a reach there but very organic it's happening i mean i think that that's what's also interesting in your series is that when people talk about their life and their work when we have to talk about it like like mm -hmm. i do not for you i mean within yeah. your 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 series you suddenly realize that things happened. Yeah. It's kind of organic, you know, it grows in you. Of course, you, you, you can identify the roots. You can, you can identify the um, acceleration or the speed up moments when things get more clearer and that you decide to follow this path instead of the other one. But in my case, I was really meant to be, to be an academic, I would say. But then at some point, this, this academic life was not fulfilling me completely. I always had this, um, this desire to uh, be in the field, to be on the, on the front line. I'm not talking about war uh, specifically, but to be on the front line of uh, events happening right now, to be where it matters for people to be part of this, this crazy world going in crazy, all crazy directions. I think... Being in an office, being a teacher was, was very rewarding and once again a privilege. I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But I wanted really to be outside, to be on the ground, yeah. to be in the field and this work aspect of, of my, my life is very important for me. I think if I had not this, this aspect, I think I would stop being a documentary photographer. Well, you'd mentioned background in studying philosophy as well and obviously what you do right now I mean there's some fairly deep existential sort of matters that you're covering and you're you know allowing for discussion and discourse to take place based on your work and I, I'm guessing as well that that all sorts of feeds into this for you as well to make it fulfilling yeah, yeah I mean I mean there's an obvious connection and when you start studying philosophy it means that you have many questions when you finish your, your master in philosophy, you still have these questions, but at least you you know how to to start the answers. 
when you're putting yourself into situations where you're able to, to challenge possible assumptions that you may or may not have or and to see things well you know through a different lens yeah. <laughs> in a sense here you know but i think i can give you a, an example to stay real let's say um i did a project in japan um, i published a book uh, about one aspect of japanese culture and when i started the book of course like many europeans and i had this cliche about the geisha world you know which usually very quickly will lead you to an association with the, the world the night you know the nightlife right. and of course prostitution which is completely wrong and false but when i landed in japan i had all this in me and i think the first months were kind of you know erasing completely these, these false ideas about this aspect of Japanese culture and specifically about these women, which are just truly amazing artists and, and amazing person, and amazing beings also in Kyoto, the ones that I met and photographed. To uh, echo what you said, and then it's, it's true that uh, when I was an historian, I wanted to put myself at risk and really understand, okay, are we sure that we know what happened about the Diomedes in the Odysseus and the Iliades, are we sure that we know this this hero? Everybody, yeah, yeah, we know. And then when you start to dig, you understand that okay, we 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 knew nothing. And it's the same with the Geiko and the Malko from Kyoto. You you think, yeah, I, I know, I know what is the Geiko. And when you start to really deeply go in the complexity of their origins, the ethnographic dimensions that they have it's just really fascinating and it's so much bigger and wider than this very let's say stupid cliche that we have mm -hmm. philosophy is about the same. it's it it's not about finding the answers it's about enriching or expanding the questions and make make the questions richer i think that it's not finding answers i don't believe in that yeah no i think that's well said and it allows, like I said, I think for, for further discourse and, and, and just talk on the matter and people to explore it more deeply and, and that word richly. And I think that, that uh, you know, encapsulates that, that feeling in a really you know, full, full bodied manner. I really like that answer. You know, we've spoken a little bit to this point on some of the projects that you have been working on. And actually prior to this recording and this talk, you'd send link over some videos a uh, video of some of your work and was highlighting what you were just speaking of with Maiko some within Kyoto Japan and then some other projects as well but maybe just to bring listeners up to speed a little bit more could you just really quickly kind of give an overview of some of the projects that you have worked on or some of the ones that stand out I mean there's probably been too many to list but just a few just to give a, a broad sort of understanding at least a few ones that would pop in into my my mind right now would be um, the the one that I started in Japan about Maiko. Uh, it was not really Geiko that were interesting uh, me at that time. I was really focused on Maiko, and why Maiko? Because they were learning, and it's a process. Mm -hmm. And at that time, myself, I was learning. I was into the process of of becoming a photographer. I mean, a professional photojournalist or documentary photographer. So I think I was very close to the Maiko at that time, not mm -hmm. because I was at the beginning understanding who they were, but because I was instantly understanding that I was learning like them. And that I was, a, I was someone learning, photographing someone learning. So yeah. I think that was the first project I would, I would just, you know, put attention on. And other ones, um, I've been working also on domestic violence issue, uh, gender-based violence, which is very important to me. In Mongolia. Mm. So I've been producing the national campaign against domestic violence uh, with the UNFPA and the NCAV, which is the National Center Against Domestic Violence. Mm. Very important project for me. Um, the most recent one, which has been just published in Geo magazines in Europe, um, is, is the one about climate change in Siberian taiga. So we, we are in, in with uh, reindeer herders who are just trying to stay themselves, which is the number one challenge. It's not really 
the fact that the 21st century is not very sweet with them. It's just that the fact that they just try to stay who they are in a very changing, rapidly changing, sorry, uh, society. So that's another project. Of course, the projects that I did in Iraq were very important. I've been documenting um, lots of uh, women fighters, mm. not because it was the, you know, the, the hot topic of the time and, and something fashionable to do in the media, but because I met uh, a few of them. And from one party, they were Kurds from Iran escaping to Iraqi Kurdistan. And I'm, I, I'm, I was photographing lots of women uh, in camps in many places in Iraq. And then suddenly I entered this, this um, Komala movement is the name that they have. And suddenly I could see that the woman in uh, this movement, political movement, which is also a military uh, party, uh, suddenly these women had, had a completely different place in society than they had in Iraqi society. So I think it, it's also one of the important stuff that I've been doing. Maybe a last one to give an idea of what I do in general would be on the Balkans. I've been working with many NGOs over there, uh, Save the Children, the one you were um, saying in the beginning. A very shocking subject for me because many, many people are just there waiting for an answer. They are completely in limbo. They lost everything. Um, they lost sometimes their loved ones and they're arriving at the door of Europe and Europe is either staying silent or either pushing them back violently or just pretending they don't really hear. So it, it was a really mm. a difficult assignment, but I think very important for um, the NGOs once again, because they had the you know strong pictures. So they, they can advocate, they can, they can really push and ask for more fundings for their operations. Mm. Oh, thank you for sharing that. As far as well, transitioning to another question here, but I think there is a, a deep connection here. Is this this line, and we spoke to it already a little bit, this blurring between the work that you do and also the personal side. And I'd be interested to, to maybe unpack that a little bit right now as well. I mean, I'm guessing, I mean, this isn't the type, the type of work that you're doing isn't the type of thing where it's like, well, here's a course on how to manage, compartmentalize and take with what you're seeing in the field and be able to, you know, handle this in your professional life. I, I'm guessing that that doesn't exist. So here's the question. I mean, how do you handle that? Or has it been something that you've over the course of time become more adept at? working through some of these emotions and what you're seeing or is this something that's just so visceral and raw and each project is unique that it's almost impossible to prepare yourself and love to hear what you have to say on that yeah it's a good question i think it's it's one that comes back that comes back sorry usually when we talk about this work mm. uh, because you quickly understand that it's more a way of living uh, i think it starts with strong values if you believe in a few things, and I think the number one is that we are all humans, we are, you know, sharing the same human conditions. And we probably all focused on the same things, which are pretty simple. Uh, at the end of the day, it's just about, you know, being loved, being respected, being protected, mm -hmm. and having a decent life in terms of, you know, shelter, food, education for your children. I think, you know, these kinds of basic needs that can be identified in, in uh, many uh, human rights declarations that we have. So that, that's the first step in my answer. But I think that once you have these values and that you want to do something with it, and that you want to be not only the, the older of these values, but also acting to promote uh, these values and to do something about it, then comes the blending between your private life and your professional life. And it's true, as you said in your last words, that it's almost impossible to prepare yourself because every assignment is going to tackle you like in soccer. It's going to, to tackle you in a place you didn't expect. I'm going to give you an example once again. I think it's important to be real and to give strong example. When I was leaving for... Uh, the Balkans. The first day was in Bosnia, Bosnia-Herzegovina. So we are just near Croatia. And uh, I didn't expect to be so 
personally touched by what I saw. And the fact is that most of the young fellows I was photographing living in the squats, you know, we were in February. It was pretty cold, lots of snow everywhere. I don't know if you can imagine a squat, you know, in, in Bosnia. It's just a, a broken roof, crazy cold, and people were living on the ground with the trash about no food. And what really took me by surprise is that suddenly when I photographed these young teenagers, they were 17, 16, 15. The youngest one was, was nine that I photographed. They were the same age as my three sons. And that's something that was, was I mean, of course I know it. Intellectually, I can, I know it. I know I experienced it already in many other countries. But this one took me by surprise completely. And I know that the, the, this kind of, let's say, emotional cost of this picture was, was, was unexpectedly high, uh, if I may say. But even when I say this, to give you a, a, an example, I, I still believe and I still consider that, that uh, you know, I, I, I'm not a hero, right? So the way I'm going to say it might, might feel strange, but I don't matter. What matters is the job, is the mission, and what matters is the beneficiaries. So I don't care if I'm cold, I don't care if I'm emotionally you know, stressed or if I'm feeling sad, I don't care if I project you know, the, this, this kind of strange, uh, unfair destiny about my sons and these young uh, teenagers that I was seeing. It doesn't matter. What matters is really these young children, uh, the families that I met, and the people that I interview, the people that I photograph. So I think it's one of the, the things that I dislike about the photography industry is that nowadays, especially the younger ones, they talk too much about themselves. Say it clearly, we don't care. I don't care about what you go through. We, and I am a privileged European. I am a privileged person. I had access to education. I went to university. I even been teaching. I, you know, I'm nicely dressed. I have a nice shirt. I, I have food on my table. I have a, I have a roof uh, over my head. So why should we talk about ourselves? Of course, there's an emotional cost to some pictures, for sure. There is an emotional cost. Even today... I was giving a lectures um, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, maybe for Sunny in the Netherlands. And some pictures, I, when I start to talk about them, I'm, I'm blocked because the, emotions, the emotion comes back. I'm, I'm again in, in this, this, I mean, as genuine as possible relationship that I have with the beneficiaries. And I'm, at some point, I'm overwhelmed by the emotion because it comes back to me. But still, 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 even... By saying this, I think, you know, we, we, we don't matter. I don't matter. It's my really main philosophy. And uh, mm. that's the things that I have to, to state, you know, mm. it, I'm just a tool uh, serving another tool who at the end of the day is serving beneficiaries. That's an interesting way of kind of looking at it. And I don't think that's something that, again, an outsider like myself or anyone else for that matter would really deeply understand. It's not just, I mean, listening to you speak about it, I mean, it wouldn't be just in the moment when you're there and you're seeing this and you're documenting it. As you just said, it can be something that's going to hit you weeks, months, even years down the road. But that coping mechanism or sort of philosophical sort of view of it all, to me, it sounds like is that by serving the needs of these people, that is your way through it all, is that you know you've put everything into it to help advance their cause in whatever fashion that might be. That's what helps you sort of process and get through it in the best possible manner. No, no, I understand what you mean. I, I completely agree. I think that this, this kind of, of significance aspect or dimension of my work, of course, is, is, is helping me tremendously to handle the situations that we see and that we live. Because, yeah. you know, photography is not only about taking a picture. It's also about living these situations with the people. If you're just an outsider, it's like looking through a window and then you make a picture and then off you go. It's not the way I work. Mm. Me, I push the door and can I, can I come in? Yeah. Uh, am I allowed to come in? And, and 
if I can stay one day or one night with them, I will do it. If I can uh, try to cross the border with uh, my, uh, refugees um, in, in Bosnia, um, I, I will do it. If I if I can really, you know, understand also not only intellectually or emotionally, but also physically, the physicality of yeah. my work is very important. And mm. that's that's also a way to to cope with the emotional cost or the personal cost. That's the classics, I would say. There are some more personal ways that help me in my work to cope with these stressful moments, let's call them like this. But I think that I'm not different from you. I'm not different from any employee going to the office. It's just that when I come back, I try to make a lot of sports. I'm a very sportive man. Mm -hmm. I cycle a lot. I try to go rock climbing as much as I can. I do a lot of trail running. This kind of physical activity helps maybe my brain to just relax. And and also I play music. I play a lot of music. Mm-hmm. So the piano, no, I'm, I'm studying the cello. It's, it's really hard. But I I mean, it, it's kind of washing my brain. Yeah. And after I do these activities, only the, the, values, the values remains and the questions and the expect that I hopefully did something. Mm. Mm, thank you for sharing that. I think that really provides a, a deep level of insight and understanding to, to what you do. And it's something, like I said, I've drawn reference to this a couple of times that I just don't think, I know I myself would not have that depth of understanding. And uh, it is really quite compelling to, to hear this, I mean, to really understand it. So thank you. Maybe we could shift into another segment here a water cooler story segment. And this one is just where I ask guests to indulge listeners with the story. And you've already provided a few, to be honest at this point, but I'm hoping that you do have something else lined up for us as well. Yeah, I think that one story that I really like to share these days uh, when people ask me, just tell us something that you saw that really was was very strange and, and awkward is the, the fact that in February, 2021, about everyone was on lockdown due to the pandemic. Mm. And so you had this widespread use of the hashtag stay home, which was, of course, uh, very necessary at that time to do. And in Belgium, uh, let's talk about Belgium, we were in, in complete lockdown. Nobody could fly, nobody could go outside of the country. The exceptions were very uh, little, very little were, people were going outside. So everybody was staying home. And then at that time, I, I, I did a first assignment in uh, Bosnia. And then I did another one in Serbia. And then I went to Thessaloniki in Greece. And in these three assignments, it was really <laughs> very strange to see that most of the people I was photographing, basically, they had no home. Because they left their home and because they were simply seeking for a new home or because the homes they were staying in were just squats at the borders, you know, in front of Croatia. And when we talk about squat, it, interestingly, um, m- many people from Bosnia, they already migrated to Germany. Okay. That's a very interesting number. So the Bosniak themselves moved to Germany. Mm-hmm. And then these people from Afghanistan, uh, Syria, uh, Pakistan, they are taking the house of Bosnia who moved to Germany yeah. because they are abandoned mm-hmm. and they're quickly be- becoming squats for migrating populations and refugees mm. and asylum seekers. So it, it was something like like a disjunction or like an electric <laughs> breakdown yeah. Yeah. in my brain where, you know, all my messages on my social network were stay home, hashtag stay home, hashtag stay home. Mm-hmm. And I was photographing people who had no homes yeah. anymore. Yeah. They were just trying to have a shelter find, from the... Find a life, find a... Yeah. And you know, this, this, this hashtag scene from their situation was also such a clear sign that the... I mean, the... the the, the world, I mean, the world is pretty unfair, uh, to be direct. Mm-hmm. 
you, you have these crazy amounts of, of, of wealth and richness highly concentrated in some parts of the world where usually not the biggest population of the planet is living. And then you have the rest of the world with, with very little left uh, or very little accessible for them. I'm not going to go into complicated political discussions here, but just to, just to, to, to give you that this, this hashtag stay home was, was another sign of, of the fact that the, 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 there are still many things that don't go in a good direction on this planet and uh, many populations suffering from these wrong directions and, and unshared uh, wealth of yeah. money. Yeah, it must have been a, a profound moment to see that and taking all of that in and yeah, deeply considering it all. Again, living it and experiencing it completely different than, you know, say somebody like this, even just the way you're describing it. I, I'm trying to envision it in my own head and you know, I, I can intellectually grasp what you're telling me. But what strikes me as well about all of this would be, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes when you're in that situation and you're seeing these things unfold and you're, you have these different messages or, you know, messaging coming out of the West of this ideal and this, and it's, it's missing the point completely. And it's ignoring this other side, major you know, populations of the world that are experiencing something far different. And uh, it's yeah. ignorance, you know, when, when the, 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 the most striking example was um, the hashtag stay home in India. Yeah. How can you ask people in India to stay home if they, I mean, first, many of them don't have homes. Right. And if they, if they stay home, how can they make this one, two, five, ten, twenty dollars every day that they make? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you can stay home when there is a social system, when there is a exactly. social net. Yeah. That is going to provide you incomes, whatever happens to you. There you can stay home. You can feel safe. You can feel protected because there's kind of a social state behind you mm -hmm. and a whole structure with, with you know, mm -hmm. lots of complexity. But when there is not such a thing, it's, 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 it's really for, for your brain. And if you are rational, it's really insane to experience these uh, yeah. These norm and, and, and all this moralization, you know, of, of what we went yeah. through during the pandemic by the Belgian government, by example. Just yeah. to well, that, I think that word that you just spoke, experience it, to experience it, you know, that that's that's the key word right there. As, as I said, I mean, I, I can read about it. I can listen to what you're telling me right now about it. But to experience it is is something quite different. Thank you for sharing that. We are moving along at a pretty good cliff here. We just we are heading around into the last segment, something called a crystal ball segment. And as the name implies, we're we're looking towards the future. It's usually trends, predictions, so on and so forth. And we've spoken to this point a little bit. We touched upon it, which is this idea of media and consumption and how people are interacting, say with photography and imagery as a whole. And as you know, and we're just speaking about this now in terms of social media. You know, people with their own phones in their own hands, you know, taking fit pictures, documenting it, as I finger quote that. I'd be curious to, to hear a little bit more about what your take is on that as it pertains to what you do. Would it, for example, I don't know, amplify the type of work that you do? I mean, in the sense that people are doing these things, their own photographs and everything else, but even they would probably acknowledge what they're doing isn't on the level as what somebody like yourself is doing. I mean, there's that line of thinking, but also on the, on the other hand, it might have this opposite effect where other people, you know, have this shallow sort of awareness or understanding of what they're doing and think, oh yeah, you know, anyone can do this. I can do this myself. Your take on all of this? I think it, I mean, I'm going to give a very special answer to this question. Mm. I think the, the problem is not social media or the problem is not that people of course, can can make pictures when they see an historical just in front of their eyes. Yeah. I'm sure that that anyone who's trying to frame would, would do it properly. Yeah. The, the, the fact that I think what what really makes a difference is that we have a drive, we have a direction, and so that's first first direction. Also, we have a clarity. 
Third, we have something like an ethical attitude, which is, of course, challenging every day. It's not easy. And last but not least, also, we have a personal uh, commitment to the stories that we do. And as I said in the beginning, we, we believe in a few things. You're not going to report on human rights issues if, if you're not personally, viscerally attached to promote these human rights, whatever the, the culture and the situations. So I think that, you know, if, if you put all these things together, you have a completely different approach to the events and mainly to the people. And the last point that I would like to say as, as an answer, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's a bit of a special puzzle answer, but last one to me, which is today the most important for me, and I would like to quote a communication officer that I met in Bosnia. And he reminded me of these very simple things. Of course, we I, I've learned this many years ago. But it's this make no harm. Make no harm. And I think that when you talk about social media, when you talk about, of course, people, I mean, everyone has, has a smartphone on a pocket that can take pictures. But what about the make no harm? What about respecting the agency of the people? What about trying to make them a part of the process of being photographed? What about giving up maybe on everything that has been requested to you by the NGOs? Because you suddenly understand that this woman in front of you wants to say something. And that's her voice that matters at the end of the day. It's not yours, it's not the NGOs. It's what she wants to say, what she's living. I think it's, yeah. it would be all these things put together that completely sets us apart. It's not because we are better photographer. I, I said it clearly, I'm not a good one. It's not because we are better in, in making pictures, but we are better in working with a drive, with clarity, with ethics, a certain sense of truth also, and telling the truth, mm -hmm. values, and also this, this kind of commitment of not harming any people. And, 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 you know, doing something that will promote and push forward the agency. I mean, by example, when you, if you take photograph of survivors of domestic violence, if you portray these women in a way that they are completely passive, or that you tell them, oh, take this, I want you to make this attitude, you are going to provoke, again, violence towards them. Or the idea is, how oh, can I myself forget about me, my job? And how oh, can I myself be something like an environment, a frame, a context, a space where this woman can express exactly what she wants and what she went through and what she experienced? Once again, it's not about, it's not about us, it's about them. And that's what you're going to, to hear in many NGOs. And that, that's why I fit so well with NGOs. Is that in media, sometimes people work for themselves. They work for their name. They work in social media. I'm sorry, once again, I will be direct. But what I see on social media is, or Instagram is people working for their names. Because they want to have thousands of followers. They want to be famous. They want to be paid by Instagram. I don't blame them for trying to find incomes, but it's completely different from what we do and how we are. They, they, just, they just work for themselves. They work for their, for their followers. Um, me, I work because I have values and because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on assignment for beneficiaries. And so it's, it's completely, if yeah, you put no, all no, it's, it's, together, it's a major, major distinction. There. You suddenly realize that at the beginning you could say, yeah, I'm, I'm close to Instagrammer. And then when you start really enrich the answer and understand the spectrum of human behaviors that can come between a picture and the process of making a picture, mm. then you understand that we have like 10,000 maps that we work on where Instagrammers or social media have only maybe a few. I think that's mm. my answer on my interpretation. No, no, I think that was well said and brings a lot of clarity to that. And I mean, I suspected it was probably going to go down a path like that, but I think it's important for people to hear that as well. 
here's a follow-up question in terms of that people within your field, some of your contemporaries, would you say the majority would also share sort of those values and ideals? Or do you encounter people that maybe you're closer on that spectrum of things that are driven a little bit more by how is this going to impact me? How can this advance my career by doing this, 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 or positioning this person, this, this subject who's in this environment in this particular manner? Or would you say most people are steadfast in their values to what you just explained? To be honest, I would say that, I mean, I have the chance to have colleagues and close friends who are also work in the same field and, of course, in the same direction than mine. So I think we're all driven. It takes too much of your personal life. You know, when you fly every two weeks, uh, it's hard to have a normal relationship with a partner. It's hard to have a lover. It's hard to be a father when you're so many weeks away from home. So I think it, 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 it takes so much of, of a private, very private life that if you're not driven by strong you know, values that you, it's not really in your blood right. or in every heartbeat, I think you're not going to make it. So I would say that, that most of my colleagues, uh, a vast majority of them, they, they really try to do the job in, in a proper way, they, they try to report, they try to document, they try to serve, they try to be as close as can be to the truth, mm -hmm. uh, understanding that there are always many sides and many perspectives on one truth. Mm -hmm. So, of course, there, there are always people doing their job uh, in a cheap way, but once again, it's happening for any, any type of work. Of course. You, you, you could be a cheap teacher. At university or you can be a brilliant one you could be a yeah. e photographer just working for yourself and your name and your awards or you can be a great one once again i think it's a personal choice but from what from my experience most of my friends i've been greatly helped by uh, photographers from maps agency uh, cedric gerbeuet gaël turin uh, i've been also greatly helped by jean gomi from magnum all these people, they, they, they are just incredibly driven by passion and, and strong, you know, human values. That, that's yes. so obvious when you talk yeah. three minutes with them. They right. just, it's completely, I mean, it's in, it's, it's in their blood. It's, it's part yeah. of their... Wood. Yeah. Well, I mean, even in this talk and speaking with you, Regis, I mean, that was something that even before we began recording, I kind of just, and in our correspondence as well, it's something that you pick up on right away. There's a, a certain level of integrity and, and values there that have certainly shaped your career and your view and obviously, you know, a, a great degree of your success as well, I would say, probably to a lot of uh, everything that you've done and accomplished. So thank you for sharing that. I do have one final question here, and this one is, I guess, looking towards the future in the sense of how do you see the field that you're within evolving moving forward? I mean, oftentimes that type of question is tied in with things like technology and everything else, but what we've been speaking a lot about today is like a lot of philosophical values and, and whatnot, and maybe that is somewhat immune to, you know, changing in terms of like, well, I guess, I guess we could evolve philosophically speaking, but I, I'd be really curious to hear what you think about how your line of work is moving. It, it's a very, it's a, uh, I'm not saying this to please you, but it's a very smart question because I can say as a final answer that photography is not about technology. No, no, it isn't. Uh, photography is about connecting with everything that you are through a landscape. Yeah. To especially let's say that you like horses and you want to make beautiful, compelling photographs of horses. You need to connect with horses, with situations, with human values, with human rights that are you know, in danger, with people in, in unfair situations, in, in war situations. So because my work is completely, I mean, almost completely disconnected from this technological aspect, the evolution I would see for me and maybe for my my industry would be to increase this um, agency that I spoke about. Yeah. There are still some work uh, that maybe, you know, could push further 
in this philosophy of, of making everything we can to respect the people and also at some point being able to give them the camera and say hey uh, i'm myself a camera i'm myself a tool but you are the photographer of yourself yeah. there's been a brilliant uh, project made by robin uh, hammond and it was about uh, refugees and basically they were taking the pictures themselves one of the last example also is is uh, the recipient of the if i'm not mistaken the the last sony awards in photography the photographer was giving the camera to the people in the camps wherever um, the photographer was meeting them and he, um, they, they had a, a mechanism and they, they they could really you know set the, the situation they could set the background they could set the framing they, they could set the posture the attitude. Mm -hmm. I think it, it's it's something that I would like to see more, and I'm very curious myself to be part of this evolution. That's what I did when I did my uh, uh, national campaign against domestic violence in Mongolia. Mm. In trying to to solve all these problems with the survivors, so every woman has been directing. It was very interesting to see that they were the ones directing. Mm. the pictures mm -hmm. and that was really the tool i think it's something that i would like to myself be more uh, committed mm. do more mm. work more this way uh, to a certain extent because i mean at some point also you have to be you have to be there so you have to state something about who you are and yeah you have to stay a photographer i'm not saying that you have i have to quit and give the camera to anyone on the street. I still have to be my 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 photographer. Yeah, uh, with my signature, my visual mm -hmm. signature. Mm -hmm. But you know that that kind of of, of participating. Yeah, uh, more it's, it's, it's a different way. You've spoken to that word of connection, and I think you know, giving the camera to somebody who is again living and breathing this world longer than say the two weeks that you're there. Of course, the the, the level of insight and the level of profoundness to it all, I think would be probably or potentially at a much deeper level. And if you can find ways to kind of harness that, in essence, it could be, you know, quite fruitful. Because I have this understanding and this definition of, of photography, I don't see evolution from the technological aspect of it. I mean, I'm, I'm happy if I'm having better cameras, lighter, yes. smaller, more discreet. Um, give them to me. I'm happy. Yeah. That's why I'm partnering with Sony um, camera, by the way. Yeah. And I'm very happy to have these cameras with me. But it's not affecting the core of my uh, everyday routine and yeah. the way I work. The quality of your work goes up by that maybe by the technological sort of advancement but in terms of like the, the depth of like what you're producing and what's coming out yeah. of here that's where the evolution is and maybe that's that's something that's tied into just you yourself you know you yeah. take on this project you work on this assignment and all of that shifts around from within and gives you new perspectives and ways of looking at things and ways of documenting lives and, and everything else that you're doing so maybe that's a nice point to uh to close off the discussion Regis. I mean, it has been absolutely, uh, you know, engaging talk. I, I feel myself, I've learned so much more about what you know, people like yourself do. And, and I've always sort of respected it, of course, um, for many different reasons. But I felt today in, in listening to everything that you shared, you know, the, the level of appreciation for it, which is already quite high, is just, you know, off the spectrum now. I mean, it, uh, yeah, really, really quite interesting, quite compelling. And uh, I thank you immensely for your time and coming on to the program today. Thank you also for your, the quality of your interactions and your questions. You know, I can only express deep things if, if the, the interviewer in front of me is, is, uh, is searching for them. So yeah. thanks for this true, yeah. let's, let's say a true exchange. Thank yeah. you. Thanks so much. For those interested in learning more about Regis and his work, you can find out more via his website. He also has a TED Talk and his work for Sony Europe Ambassador. Also, he does have an Instagram account, and for reference, all this information will be included in the show notes. 
If you like today's show, please be sure to share. I mean, I think uh, I say this each and every time. I think it's great. We can learn a little bit more about one another, what we're doing, the challenges, the, the joys, and everything else associated with it. And also, too, I think that brings us together. It lessens the divide and tribalism, if you will. So, yeah, please get it out there and please share. To show further support, you can rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. And head on over to YouTube. I recently launched a channel over there where you can check out full video episodes, um, much like we had today with Regis. And the interesting thing there is we'll have some some images some pictures that will accompany the episode, which hopefully will give you a, a greater depth and understanding of the talk itself. And if you are there, you'll notice right away that the show does need a little bit of love on that platform. So, hey, if you wouldn't mind you know, hitting subscribe, that would be great, too. And finally, don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life as a, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.